0: So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James 5, 1 through 6 today, or yes, 1 through 6, and that's page 1013 in the Black Pew Bibles there in front of you. So in addition to writing the books that you were probably forced to read in high school, I know I was, um, Mark Twain is also very famous for writing travel logs, travel books, where he'll kind of make a journal and a diary of what he saw throughout his travels, And most notable in that list, he has a work called The Innocents Abroad. It's also actually been called The New Pilgrim's Progress, for those of you that have read that as well, a little bit different. Um, But in it, he documents his travels throughout Europe and eventually through the Holy Land before coming back to America. And in one particular story, he tells of visiting the ruins of Pompeii. So Pompeii is the city in in Italy, at the time Rome, historic city, that was completely destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. And he tells of looking through the ruins, you can go to the ruins now and you can actually see where individuals were, were killed, like skeletons, leftovers, the kind of burnt out husk of the city that was covered in ash and was blasted with heat. And he tells of a particular story that he was going through and he and his group came along a skeleton and it was found just outside a door, and in one hand it had ten gold pieces, and in the other hand it had a key that was reaching to open the door. And he says if it had just been a minute longer, if that person had just had a minute longer, they would have been able to open the door, get behind it, and maybe shield themselves from the blast. Now, we don't know, obviously now, if that person would have survived had he not been weighted down with those ten gold pieces. Gold's not particularly light. Or if he had wasted time grabbing his money. But what is indicative here is that we see very clearly what that person's hope was in, where their priorities were when they saw the incoming danger, when they saw death racing towards them. Get to a safe place, but hold on to your money, right? Keep that. i got to keep my my gold here, my key in my other hand. And just as Caleb mentioned last week, when the pressure is turned up, when when we're faced with circumstances, we often see where our hope ultimately is, what we're placing our faith in. And while we may not carry our gold with us right now, I actually don't have any gold, unfortunately, uh, nearly 2,000 years later, we see that worldview is still very predominant in our society. That is a a human thing. That's not an ancient Roman thing. This idea that money can save us, be that in our title, in our work, in our possessions, in our home, do we have that nice, beautiful home? Do we have a nice, safe car? Do we have all these things that keep us safe and secure? If you've been reading ahead as we progress through James, this sermon series that we've been working on for the past couple of months, this section that we're about to read today may have stood out to you. Um, in the passage, we see what is probably James's strongest rebuke and open condemnation. He really lays it on. And you may even see the title of the sermon. Um, you see the word desolation up there. And that's a little bit harsh. It's a little bit extreme, right? We don't see the word desolation used a lot unless it's in blockbuster movie titles. So it's easy for us to see this passage of Scripture with harsh themes and judgments and want to bypass them, kind of hop over it to maybe happier things. Um, it's, that's human nature, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to face a strong rebuke. We don't want to be forced to consider our failings. We don't want to be lectured. Those are things we don't want. By nature, we're desirous of flattery. Or if we, if we do have to face rebuke, criticism, we want it to be as mild as possible, right? Just that... Nice little constructive criticism towards the end. Uh, That's not how Scripture is written. That's not how, as we look across the totality of Scripture, that's not what's included. And that could be in the fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth that we see in Matthew. That could be gloomy chains of darkness in Jude. That could be the coming judgment throughout many Old Testament prophets. All of these things are equally in Scripture. They're there. And it only takes a quick Google search Conversely, to see massive lists that people have made of you know, uplifting, encouraging scriptures. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be encouraged. That's a good thing, to be encouraged and uplifted by scripture. But on the one hand, it's really easy to remember, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me, in Philippians. A lot of us probably learned that as kids. It's a little harder to want to remember something along the lines of waterless springs, misdriven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I don't think I learned that in Awana. Um, But that's still in Scripture, right? That is just as much spirit-breathed, God-authored as the rest of Scripture. In fact, the Greek word for woe, like woe to you, is used something like 47 times in the New Testament. And most of those are actually Jesus talking. Um, The Savior himself uses that. And likewise, a similar Hebrew phrase is probably used at least 78 times in the Old Testament. This is not a a one-off thing that it's okay for us to let go this is a recurring and, and present theme in Scripture that we're called to address just as much as we're called to address perhaps the more uplifting or at least at face value encouraging things. But warnings are important. Warnings tell us a lot of things. They tell us what are, what are important, what should we care about, and James uses the strong language that he uses today to highlight the severity of his warning. What I hope we'll see this morning is that godless wealth will bring only condemnation. I'll say that again so it sticks. Godless wealth will bring only condemnation. So let's read. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, behold, The wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So it's important to note as we look at this, how James addresses this particular section. He actually starts off with, you rich, Um, as opposed to his usual, my brothers. If we look back throughout all of James, most of the sections he starts off with saying, my brothers. And so it's important to take note of that because that, that indicates that this explicit condemnation that he's giving right now is not directed at his previous audience explicitly, those in the church that he's been writing to, to encourage and to strengthen and provide rebuke. Instead, it's written to the wealthy outside it. Likely, these wealthy people that he's speaking to right now are the people who were abusing, oppressing, and persecuting the early Christians that he's writing to encourage and to strengthen. So, these are external oppressors that he's writing to. So, it's easy in light of that news to say, oh, okay, there's people outside the church, Richmond, to just space out or self justify, to ignore the rest of what we have to say. You can say, ha, you know, I'm a Christian. So my wealth and the means by which I got it aren't on trial here. No problem. It's for other people. It's not for me. And Just like when we look through Acts, as we did over the past couple years, if we look in Acts 2 and Acts 4, we can see communal living in the early church, and we're quick to look for that caveat, right? It says they had all things in common, and we want to hear early on in the sermon just like, well, that was an exception, right? We don't have to share everything. We're not communists. We don't have to do that. That's not normative for the rest of us. And that's true. That's absolutely true that that was a one-off circumstance that's not normative for what we should do. And a similar caveat applies here, right? This was directly written at those outside the church. God will save you independent of your wealth, regardless of your wealth. And if you want a more thorough explanation of that, Caleb did a very good job um, listening, uh, or rather going through the sermon on James 2, 1 through 7, talking about wealth. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that for a more explicit coverage of that, or rather directed. But I also want you to not so quickly excuse yourself right now. Not so quickly grab onto that caveat. Look for that excuse. And my point here isn't to make you question your salvation. It's not to make you believe that God hates you if you have money, that God loves you if you're poor, hates you if you're rich. That's not what Scripture teaches. My point here is that we just have to cultivate critical hearts when we come to texts like this. We have to be open to the rebuke that God gives us. We have to question how and why maybe we want those reassurances. Why is it that I'm so eager to look for the, okay, I don't have to share my money, thank goodness. Because if we genuinely want to rightly understand Scripture, and how God calls us to order our lives, that's a good thing. But if we just want an excuse to hold on to our idols, hold on to our wealth, hold on to the things that culture tells us will save us, that culture tells us are meaningful, that have ultimate value, not just material value, then we have to be very critical as we look through this. And James is not, just because James is not addressing believers here, that doesn't mean that these behaviors, these condemnations and rebukes that he set out, shouldn't serve as a clear warning to us. Uh, This is the same principle that Paul alludes to when he's writing the Corinthians to learn from the idolatry of the Israelites that the first generation after they were taken out of the land of Egypt weren't able to come into the promised land. They weren't able to do that. And Paul says to the Corinthians, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So just as we see that warning in that circumstance, so too can we look at these rebukes for those of us that are believers, that are Christians, as examples, as evil that we should learn not to do. And the first example we see in James is that godless wealth wastes away. In verses 2 and 3, James says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days." So James's initial point here is to say that accumulating wealth, it will waste away, it's perishable. This is echoing Jesus's teaching in Matthew 6 where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on on earth where moth and rust will destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Our inclination is to accumulate things that will momentarily satisfy us without regards to their ultimate value. This is a great example of this, as I was thinking about it this week. It's in Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So they've just gotten the Holy Grail. They've just gotten this cup that can heal people, do all sorts of cool things, and they take it across the seal, and the temple starts to break apart, right? Nazis are running everywhere. It's a a horrible scene. And this great rift opens up in the ground, and the cup falls in, and, you know, it's a classic movie, so the cup is right there on the edge beneath it. And the Nazi archaeologist Elsa for those of you that are really into Frozen, just think about that for a minute, runs over to grab the grail, right? She wants to grab the cup, and of course she falls down, and all that's left holding in one hand is Indiana Jones trying to save her, and in the other hand, this great grail, this really cool thing. And she keeps reaching for it, right? She leans out, and she's stretching, and of course her glove is slipping away. Indiana Jones can't quite hold her on, and he keeps saying, no, 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 don't reach for the grail. You're gonna die. If you do this, you will die. But nonetheless, she keeps reaching, and of course, she falls into a pit. She wants it that bad. And that's, I think, really indicative of the mindset that we have when we pursue wealth. We ignore these warnings uh, to the external effect of what this will ultimately do for us. We're just concerned with the here and now, with wanting that cool thing, that beautiful cup. And in writing this, James is kind of shoving that in our face. He's saying we need to have a greater perspective. We need to have a bigger picture. There is more than the here and now in this immediate life, that the accumulation of wealth is just a momentary blip as everything moves towards eternity. As Christians, we have to rightfully understand that our lives on the earth and our happiness on the earth is just a sliver, just a tiny bit, in what ultimately lays in store. We have to be concerned with the big picture, just as God is concerned with the big picture. So when we prioritize money, or maybe more relevantly to us, the means of acquiring it, your job, or the trappings that come with it, so wealth, nice things. When we neglect our family in the pursuit of careers, maybe we idolize the status of having a big house, a big car, a nice car. If we really care about having 1.87 perfect children in that nice, tight nuclear family that are well-dressed, always have the best things. When we prioritize those things, we've lost sight. Of the big picture. We have to rightly value what God calls us to value and the things that he calls us to value. Otherwise, in doing so, as James says, we're just going to testify to our own corruption. We're just going to speak to what we really care about. In Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't merely say, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He goes on, right? He goes on to say, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as opposed to laying up wealth in the last days, that means we should look to things of eternal significance. We should look to things of internal import, lasting worth. For those working, that means rightly understanding working and making money as a means to maybe more significant value and instead of an into itself. We don't work merely to work, merely to gain things. And that can look different in different circumstances. For those of you without children or spouses, maybe that means working in a way that you're flexible, working in a way that your time isn't demanded all the time with your work, but instead you can go out and serve those in your community, serve those in the church, take care of children. I know I've been blessed, uh, very blessed in my life to have people willing to babysit for me, willing to take care of me so I can do these things And if you're working all the time, that's not necessarily attainable. Maybe that means working in a job that's less prestigious, less well-paying, but is meaningful, that you can do things that God values. You can care for the orphan, the widow. You can encourage and uplift. Or maybe, on the flip side, that means getting the highest-paying job you can, working all the time, and then funneling that money into things that do matter. We just talked about the NAMB There are countless missionaries, countless organizations, countless ways in which God is working in our community that that do need funding, that do need money. This is a reality. And so maybe that is what God is calling you to do, is to work but not to hoard those things for yourself but instead use them in a way that has eternal significance as opposed to just momentary momentary self-elevation. And as parents, maybe that means... How we treat our children, how we interact with our children has to be much more important in how we view things. Our children are people. They will ultimately have the same fate as we do. They will be judged. And so it's important that we spend our time disciplining them. I don't mean in a negative sense, but in an uplifting and encouraging and affirmative sense, molding them into people that love God, know God, and will ultimately serve and advance his kingdom. That's what we should have to do, even if that comes at the cost of career advancement. And it's easy to think of this as a sacrifice, right? Like, oh, this is this huge burdensome thing that I have to stop doing good things, I have to stop doing fun things, and instead I do bad things, for lack of a better word, that I don't get to buy a fancy car, I don't get to spend all of my resources on things that I want, I don't get to treat myself, right? But that's entirely the wrong way of thinking about it. It's not as if in telling us to treasure and accumulate things of value that God is selling us the lesser package, right? That God is giving us a raw deal. God is not the sneaky parent who tells you that vegetables are just as good as candy even though you know that's obviously a lie, that's ridiculous, that's not who God is. Rightfully, rather he knows what is truly fulfilling. He knows what will truly satisfy our needs, what will truly satisfy our wants. He doesn't just arbitrarily pick good things, like advancing his kingdom, serving others, loving loving the church, loving your children. And he doesn't arbitrarily pick bad things, like keeping all your money or having excessive things. Instead, he acts according to his goodness, right? His omniscience, his mercy, all of his things What God teaches us to value aren't arbitrary commands, but rather the natural outflowing of his nature. So we can be confident in knowing that ultimately they are satisfying. They are good. They are what we should value. They are the big picture that we should have. We must train ourselves to find enjoyment and contentment in doing what God values, not in the fleeting pleasures that we see to be had through drink, food, all of these things. And C.S. Lewis summarizes this quite well in saying, One of the wisest men to have ever lived, right, a man who had everything, everything that wealth could provide, all of these things, wrote an entire book about it, right? He wrote an entire book about the fleetingness of wealth apart from God. In Ecclesiastes five ten through 12, he writes, "'He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes?' Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Wealth will waste away. No matter how much we pursue it, no matter how much we lust for it, no matter how much we value it, no matter how much we keep on pursuing it, wealth will waste away. And that's why reflecting upon all of these things, Solomon says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, For this is the duty of man. Wealth is food that will not fill, strength that will not satisfy. All these things will go away. It is only in God that we can find true meaning and true satisfaction that will not go away. It's Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's how we can avoid the evil of fleeting wealth, falling into that self-condemnation, is to rightfully hope in something that cannot corrode, it cannot diminish, it cannot tarnish. So in addition to wealth wasting away, James brings up a very pressing point as well, that godless wealth ultimately exploits the worker. In verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here James is condemning a very specific practice in which employers would withhold payments from their employees after they have spent a day working, performing work for them. And obviously I think even our own culture would recognize this as wrong, as immoral, right, to demand someone work or have someone do something for you and then cheat them, right? That's what we would probably call it in a current context. So so even outside a Christian context, this is very clearly wrong, it's very clearly immoral but there's specific weight to this because James is criticizing something that God himself criticizes in the Old Testament. Not only is it blatantly wrong, it's actually opposed to the law that God set forth for the Israelites. Leviticus 19.13 says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And likewise, in reiterating the law before the Israelites were to re-enter the promised land... Deuteronomy 24 says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So it wasn't an uncommon practice in the ancient world to withhold wages from laborers in order to maybe coerce them into coming back And working for another day, so you don't pay them all their money, but you say, okay, well, I'll pay you, you know, at the end of the week, just come back and work for another season or work for another year, work for another month. And likewise, it wasn't uncommon to just withhold wages in order to cheat them, in order to pay them less than what they're due. And because laborers were unable to follow through, this was easy because laborers were unable to follow through in courts, either due to lack of social standing, or as Deuteronomy mentions, because they can't afford to go without working. They can't afford to not take the lesser amount, otherwise they won't be able to provide for their family. And by withholding their money, what these rich people are ultimately doing is treating these workers like beasts of burden, treating them like animals, right, tools. And it's not enough to merely just look at this practice and condemn it to kind of, dust our hands off and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not defrauding workers, I don't know about anyone else here, but I don't hire anyone regularly, so that's not really a problem that I have, I'm good, I'm not defrauding my workers, Um, or maybe you see that and you run a business and in some kind of perverse sense to justify that behavior, you can appeal to economic ideals, right, economic realities, you can say, you know, it's just the cost of doing business, it's expensive to run a business, it's expensive to do things, You know, that's just what I need to do to compete in the market, right? But that line of thinking is not in the line of Scripture. That's not how God calls us to think. That is worldly, pagan thinking. That is not in line with the just and right commands of a righteous God. So we have to focus on why this behavior emerges. What is the root of it, ultimately? And friends, I I think it lies in our failure to treat others, particularly those who we employ or who serve us, who are beneath us in some way that we have command over, we fail to treat them as image bearers of God. It's not coincidence that earlier in his letter, James, when talking about using the tongue and how we should tame it, he says we use the tongue to bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, the image of God. It's also not happenstance. At the very beginning of the creation story, right, Genesis 1 It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And later on in Genesis, God says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is a fundamental aspect of humanity. That's a fundamental characteristic of what we are as people. We are made in the image of God. People have inherent value. They have inherent dignity as image bearers of God. We are more than mere animals, more than mere things. We can use tools to achieve good ends, right? If I want to build a cabinet, I can use tools, use saws, wood, I can make a piece of furniture. That's a good thing, right? That's admirable. We're producing something. Maybe more relevantly for a, a Midwestern audience, when I use farm equipment, if I want to harvest, if I you know, use my tractor or my combine, if I plant or harvest and use that to make money, that's a good thing. Making money in that context, using those tools, that's a fine and right thing to do. But when I start forcing people to work for me, or if I start coercing them to take less pay, intentionally paying them less than I know they rightfully deserve, that is when we depart, and we start to treat people as tools, as things. That's not being frugal. That's not having good business sense. That's not being clever. That's using people. That's turning an image bearer of God into a beast of burden, to a horse. It's turning someone into a tap that you can just turn on and turn off and use whenever you want to. And so that's not just something that James is condemning. That's something that our culture embraces as well. And this doesn't just apply to those who might hire someone or might have someone work for them. This mindset and this worldview can be seen in how just probably all of us in this room have at times interacted with various people, the contempt that we can show maybe to people working in stores, places we visit. my mercifully, mercifully brief time working at an office max, um, back when there were still office maxes, back when that was a thing I did that in high school, um, was enough to show me that it wasn't just my managers, it wasn't just the company, it wasn't people that were going to maybe use me or feel entitled to my time. Um, rather, it was, it was the people that came in often, right, you can see when I was checking people out, like, okay, we've got our little treadmill, right, the little thing that I put my goods on, then the, the scanning thing that beeps, and then there's a, a human-shaped polo-wearing thing that's kind of attached to the cash register, and he kind of talks, and I move on. They're just part of the furniture, right? They're just things in there. And I hear that a lot from friends that work in the service industry, work in, in a in a circumstance where People are asking them to do something. They are serving other people. The sort of dehumanization and the casual dismissal that they experience daily. So it's really critical to care, to think about how we interact with other people, because God cares. That's why we care about this, because God cares about this. We need to value the things that God cares. James says the exploitation of workers reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts. That should be both a frightening thing for those of us that would want to exploit workers. That should be a concern. God sees this. God hears this. But it should also be a comfort, maybe for those of you that are feeling exploited, maybe that you're feeling overworked. God is just, and he cares about these things. Psalm 103 says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Likewise, Psalm 147 says, he upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. If you're feeling exploited in your work or taken advantage of, be comforted in knowing that God is not absent from that circumstance. God is not absent anywhere. He's not overlooking it. And just as these brothers and sisters to whom James is writing are living in a culture where they're kind of the bottom rung, right? They're being oppressed, persecuted. You may likewise feel maybe not persecuted, but exploited, dismayed, overlooked, dehumanized by circumstance, by your job, by your work, anything like that. Know that God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't failed to notice you. He hasn't failed to notice any of this. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God will judge fairly. James even alludes to this. I'm stealing thunder a little bit from the, whoever's going to preach next week. Um, but he says this in verse 7. He says, be patient, right after our text today. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Right? Whenever we see therefore in Scripture, that should immediately draw our eyes. That's a pivot. Right? That's a motion. That's a motion it's a huge swing. Those, who, those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have hope in him, can have hope in his right just, judgment. We can be patient, knowing that God will ultimately exercise judgment, that he will set things right, he will set things correctly, he will follow through on this. We can trust in him and know that he will come again. And that brings up perhaps my last point, but maybe the the culmination of this, not the most important necessarily, but what this all points to, which is to say that wealth apart from God denies Christ's lordship. That's where James is moving towards all of this. In verses 5 and 6, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Here, James, at face value, is pointing to the abuse and the murder of a righteous person. Right? Maybe the audience to whom he is writing, these believers, would kind of insert themselves into that place. They see their own suffering, that maybe they don't even resist it. They are living in a righteous sense, the abuse and murder of them, the oppressed church. But in writing this, James is doing something that the Old Testament authors do quite frequently, um, maybe not as explicitly. And he's calling back this kind of parallelism that we see in the Bible. And to give an example, when we read in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, if we read Psalm 22, Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So that Psalm, in its original context, Psalm 22, is actually written about David, the suffering of King David. David is the one who wrote it, and perhaps in the immediate context, this was when um, he was being oppressed by Saul or other groups. But if we zoom out from that and we look at the entire meta narrative of Scripture, if you will, the story of Scripture, the, the grand overarching theme that we see we see more explicitly the cry of desolation of Jesus on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that instance is actually quite explicit. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 during his crucifixion. So when we come to James and we see this reference to the righteous person, we likewise see a parallelism employed. We see this similar idea. So while readers of the letters likely see themselves maybe as the holy person, God's people, the church, right, his righteous bride, being acknowledged in their suffering, they saw, more importantly, the righteous person who was killed by the world. James is drawing attention to the fact that the sinful rich people, these people that have wealth without God, that oppress, like them, orchestrated and brought forth the murder of Jesus. Numerous times throughout the gospel narrative, we see that the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, is the dominant people in Israel, likely most of them fairly wealthy, the rich men, they plot to destroy Jesus. That's a common aside after many parables or stories within the Gospels. You see. And they went away and plotted. And we see how Jesus was brought forth in front of the wealthy and corrupt Herod. He was brought in front of the rich governor Pilate, who even acknowledges Jesus' own innocence. And ultimately, he was still murdered. And they did these things because they did not acknowledge Jesus for who he was. They did this because they did not acknowledge him as Lord. Jesus is Lord. So why then is James bringing that up, okay? That's a useful fact. I'll, I'll accept that maybe. Why is James bringing it up? It's pretty straightforward to see the first few points I brought about, uh, how that provides justification to rebuke godless wealth, right? It's pretty straightforward to see, okay, well, yeah, wealth is ultimately meaningless and wealth is built on exploitation. Those are, those are good reasons to rebuke it. But what does it really have to do with Jesus' lordship? And James, just as he has done throughout the entire book, right, this is kind of the reoccurring theme throughout James, is using behavior to speak to the condition of the heart. So he's using actions, the outpouring, what we do to speak to who we are or what we think, what we care about. Jesus, rather, is not seen as Lord to the rich man. To the rich man, he sees money or probably really himself as Lord over his own life. James is showing in practice what it looks like when Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So James is showing what this looks like in practice to have money, material goods, things as our Lord, as opposed to our rightful Lord. And this false worldview is heightened through James telling the rich men they have fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter. We, both the audience that this was written to and us here in this room, we're living in the last days, right? The time anticipating Christ's return. We're in this sort of Jesus has already come, but we're waiting for him to come back, that tension. And so we ought to live in light of that fact. That should be a very present reality to how we view everything that we do. Because regardless of whether or not we acknowledge this fact or don't, it's true. Unlike the rich men who can ignore it, not care about it, it's still true. My opinion on something has no bearing on whether or not it's the case. So in failing to recognize Jesus as the Lord, as the sovereign of the universe, and inflating, their, inflating themselves, putting themselves in that place, the rich men in this case are doing kind of the equivalent of, mm, you know, I don't want to see this plugging their ears and turning their head to the fact. Um, And this may be more easily conveyed, uh, for those of you that have ever put a toddler to bed, um, I do this every night, Um, you've seen a similar self-deception probably take place. So frequently I go and put my daughter to sleep and I walk up to her and I remind her, I say, Haley, it's time for bed. And the response I usually get is something along the lines of no bedtime, daddy. And she just scampers off somewhere and is like, ha, I've tricked you. It's not really my bedtime. But whether or not she chooses to acknowledge that it is her bedtime or to acknowledge that I'm dad, right, I'm the one that gets the call the shots, is immaterial to the fact it's her bedtime. That's what it is. And likewise, when we look to our money and our wealth, that's what we're doing. We're saying, ah, uh, yeah, I know God says this. I know he cares about this, but... I'm really in charge here, and just kind of shrugging, are the things that we do show that we want to be lord over our own lives. So we're like that petulant toddler, right, who keeps pointing to ourselves and saying, no, I'm good, I'm sufficient, I'm capable. And likewise, in establishing our own lordship through wealth, we misunderstand that it was God that ultimately provided that to us in the first place. In First Chronicles, David acknowledges God as the source of all provision and wealth. God is our provider, right? He says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. It's God who made everything. God made all things through Christ and put Jesus in dominion over them. He is the creator, he is the provider, he is the sustainer of all of this. To claim that we are justified through our wealth or that our wealth is sufficient for us is to usurp Jesus. It's to try to take his place as rightful Lord over all things. I think an early church father, John Chrysostom, expresses this outrage really well, saying, we have received all things from Christ, both existence itself we have through him and life and breath and light and air and earth. We are sojourners and pilgrims, All this about mine and thine, it's it's mere verbiage, does not stand for reality. For if you say to the house, is yours, it is a word without reality, since the very air, earth, matter are all the creators. And so are you to yourself who have framed it, and all other things also. He's saying here is everything is from God. Everything is ultimately from God. Everything ultimately belongs to him. Our things are merely given to us for a time to shepherd and to steward well, and we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight and somehow think that we are in control, that we are the ultimate providers in our lives. To claim riches or money as the final authority over our lives is to, as Paul said, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is ultimately what comes from godless wealth, a denial of who God is and an attempt to put ourselves in that place. So if we take back, if we wanna step back for a moment and look at all of this, this has all been a little bit heavy, a little bit of a pressure, right? We see in our wealth and how we view our wealth, how we pursue wealth aside from God. We see that condemnation that comes forth. We see that that wealth will ultimately only testify to our own corruption. We cannot save, our wealth cannot save us, it is not sufficient. And in light of hearing all of this, it may be tempting to say, just like the Pharisees did, thank you God that I am not like this rich man, right? Thank you God, I'm not like these evil rich men. But none of us are off the hook here, none of us are. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Likewise in Corinthians, Paul writes, for he, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are all responsible, not just the Pharisees, not just the rich men at the time, not just Pilate, not just Herod. We are all equally responsible in our sin, in our trespass for the crucifixion of Jesus, for that pain that was borne by him. We are all responsible. And just as James said in chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails it in one point has become guilty of it. So even if we're not immediately talking about these things here, these things that we see the rich men do, we nonetheless have hearts in our natural states like these rich men. We have failed to keep the perfect law of God. We are all guilty before him. But we're not left in that place. I'm not going to just end the sermon there say, okay, well, keep on living in light of that guilt. Because we know there is a hope, right? There is a hope that we can look forward to, hope in one who did keep the law. Just as we cannot keep the law, just as we are not righteous, there is one who is righteous, as James says, the truly righteous man, who despite our sin, despite our putting him there, suffered on the cross, in the place, bore the wrath of God, so that we might not have to stand condemned before God. And that's Jesus, right? As Christians, what we have here is this great underlying comfort and hope this cushion that even when we we come across these difficult passages, these difficult things that force us to ask questions about why do I do this, why do I care about this, why do I pursue wealth, why do I pursue all of these things, there's a great underlying comfort and hope that we have in knowing that we can trust in the full and completed work of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, maybe if you're here just learning about this, if this is the first time you're hearing it, if you haven't repented of your sin, if you're not trusting in the person and work of Christ for forgiveness, use this as an opportunity. Use this as an opportunity to reflect upon your state, your reliance on material things, how how you are. Are you like the rich men in this passage? Because it's only through Christ that we can be reconciled to God. Because godless wealth will ultimately bring only condemnation. Let me pray, Father. We thank you um, for the opportunity to see in this passage, as, as tough as it may be at times, as, as hard as it may be to hear, that you, you give us a way. You give us a, a way away from our sin, out of our sin in Christ. That You don't leave us to, to be persecuted, to be oppressed, or to be the oppressor, that we are both. That You don't leave us in that place, but instead that in your rich and undeserved mercy, you come to us. I pray that this would be an opportunity for us to to search our hearts, that we can eagerly and joyfully live in a manner that reflects the worth and the glory of your calling. I pray this in Christ's name.